Welcome, everybody, to Writers Not Writing, our show about authors procrastinating. Uh, thanks to Doug, who's going to make us all sound decent here. So this is a show where Doug and I interview writers uh, and we learn about what is going on in the writing life outside of the writing itself. Uh, at the beginning of each show, we identify our secret word. You'll want to listen for this word. And as soon as you hear it, make a noise, do your thing. We're going to create that Pavlovian response so that when you get used to hearing the word, you, you know, make a fart noise or scream or whatever. And today's word is experience. So listen for the word experience. And now here's writers not writing. Today's guest is Evan Morgan Williams. Uh, Evan Morgan Williams was has published over 50 short stories in literary magazines, uh, both famous and obscure. His first collection, Thorn, won the 2013 Chandra Prize at BKMK Press. Uh, the book went on to win a gold medal from the Independent Publishers Book Awards at the so-called Ippies. In 2018, Williams released a second collection, Canyons, Older Stories, I've got that one, uh, in a limited print run. And the book won a gold medal from the Next Generation Independent Book Awards. A third collection, Stories of the New West, which I was just reading this week, uh, was released in 2021 by Main Street Rag Press. Uh, Williams holds an MFA from the University of Montana. He's just retired from public school teaching after 29 years. He lives in Portland, Oregon. Quite a career, 29 years in public schools. Thank you for that. Um, so before we get to our questions... The first thing we always do, just for the sake of the podcast listeners, because, of course, the YouTube folks can see this, but uh, for the sake of the podcast folks, tell everybody what, because we fully dress up, costume, the whole thing. So what have you chosen to wear for the folks who are listening today? Well, it might appear that uh, I'm wearing a conventional L.L. Bean plaid flannel shirt, but the truth is, uh, some of you may not know this. I am actually born the same year, the same month, and within just 24 hours of Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt and I are within 24 hours of the exact same wow. age. Um, one of us has aged better than the other. Um, yeah, you look great. He's getting leathery. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm the control sample. Yes. But um, I, uh, <laughs> I, I connected with him the other day. And uh, just as kind of a birthday thing, he flew me down. And I'll just say this, the L.L. Bean on Rodale Drive is not your garden variety L.L. Bean. Uh, this particular shirt is made out of the wool of, of the rare and elusive Vicuña. Ah, especially, Vicuña. Yeah. And, um, and then he set me up with... He set me up with these nice glasses. These are Tom Ford glasses. Um, he set me up with a with a beautiful Paul Newman Daytona, which um, seems to have fallen off my wrist. I can have to find that somewhere. <laughs> and um, yeah, everything. Uh, the pants. I'm these these pants I'm wearing. I, I can't really show you. Uh, they're they're not they're not for market yet. They're yeah. they're uh, just kind of an inside thing that. Yeah, they they haven't released, so it's, I, I had to sign an NDA. Oh my gosh, that is very cool. Well, I did not. Yeah. Mine's not that fancy uh, in terms of uh, uh, you know uh, the the celeb angle. Crystal made this. Uh, she wanted me to look like Henry VIII, so I've got this full. And it's funny because people see it. We you know got it for a for a costume party, and people see it and go, "Oh, Shakespeare." And it's like, no, it's, this is the full, this is that, that portrait of Henry VIII. Uh, and so, you know, that's kind of a gag. So I'm in full Tudor gear today. Uh, and, and so that's, and some of the parts are less comfortable than others. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the, the Henry VIII getup. So if you've seen that, those of you who are listening, if you've seen that portrait of Henry VIII, that's pretty much exactly what I look like, uh, except he had hair on top of his head. So um, I was going to say, yeah, I was I was picking up the Shakespeare vibe, but now that you you laid out yeah, the, the Tudor, you know, era, yeah, um, yeah. So, how did you fill it out though? He he had he has considerable girth to fill out. Well, that's history. I think that's why people can't identify it. It's like, oh, he's you're thinner, you know, um, and I also don't carry myself with that. I discard wives vibe. 
Uh, and so yeah. that, yeah. you know, yeah. you've got, there's a kind of chauvinist confidence that I think I, I lack for the, for the presence of it. Uh, so, you know, I, I imagine kind of a nebbish, you know, t- uh, timid guy dressed as Henry VIII. So it's, it's you know, it's ironic uh, in that way as well. I, I don't carry myself like I have, you know, the authority to have uh, spouses beheaded. Uh, so, uh, which is, I, I think, a good thing. I mean, you know, but, uh, but you know, it doesn't fit the costume uh, perfectly. So creates that internal irony. Um, the, the clothes make the man. Maybe if I wore this more, Crystal would be nervous for her safety. Um, <laughs> that might not be good. It's it's a weird choice for costume for her to make, but I think it was the technical uh, challenge of you know, seeing if she could pull it off. But uh, yeah, wanting your wanting your significant other to look like he beheads his his many many wives is uh, it's a, it is an interesting choice on her part. So of course, the shows about how we as authors as writers are not writing. So what has been a pop culture distraction for you this week? What's been getting in the way of your work? Oh, well, uh, the first answer just has to be TikTok. I, 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 don't, I don't like to admit it. It is truly addictive. You think, oh, I'll just be on for a few minutes and then you're on for 30 minutes or more. Oh, um, yeah. But I will say this, um, I like watching just small folks doing fun things. I like to watch the dancing, the athletics, all that kind of stuff. And as a former middle school teacher, I'm finding out that there's a new TV show about Wednesday Adams. And completely, you know, now I'm not in the, I used to teach eighth grade, right? And so uh, this would have been on my radar because I like to have <laughs> pop culture. I could talk to the students about it. And now there's this show Wednesday and I see all of these people on TikTok doing the Wednesday Adams dance. Apparently she goes to a prom or something and she dances. And, and so there's all these kids on TikTok doing the Wednesday Adams dance. And I would love to be able to talk to my students about that, except I don't have any more students. You know, it reminds me back in the 90s when Buffy the Vampire Slayer was such a big show. I and the was kids, a big fan. Oh, oh, the kids would watch it religiously. And it was so empowering just mm-hmm. for kids to have power and authority and an independent life with agency. Yeah. And uh, and the show was validating all that. And I feel like this Wednesday Adams show is as well. From what I've heard from just little clips that I've seen, she is a feisty, fiery, independent speaker. She's also a writer, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yes, I will have to check that one out. I We do a, a unit in my freshman English class that's about film and it is we use tim burton and i have mixed feelings about tim burton uh on the one hand technically very proficient and the reason we well there's two reasons we use tim burton when you are writing an essay about a particular director's style tim burton's style is distinctive you know so often you see films and you say i couldn't look at that and say that is directed by i mean you've got cohen brothers you've got directors where you can tell that's directed by that that director or that yeah. pair of directors but tim burton movies you see a tim burton movie you know it's a tim burton movie uh and yeah. even sometimes to a deceptive degree there are a couple of films like nightmare before christmas and uh oh, there was another one uh, i think it was called 11 which were from his production company but he didn't direct them but they still are, you know, strongly uh, uh, have that vibe of, you know, they're Burton-esque. Uh, but so, you know, it, it, we're having the students write about their, th- how a director is an author and, uh, you know, their style and, and that. So Burton's great for that. And the other big advantage, all the films we can use of his are PG-13 or PG. So, you know, those other distinctive directors, I would love to show other directors but I can't show a bunch of rated R movies to 14 year olds. So on the one, you know, on the one hand, he's great for that. On the other hand, you got the Johnny Depp thing. I am uncomfortable. And we just talk about that in class and we are just open about, you know, this is, I am uncomfortable uh, uh, showing you this guy right now, all things considered. Uh, And also Burton's films are, the representation is a problem. Like it is predominantly white cast He's heard some of that criticism, and I I hope this new show Wednesday has a more diverse cast. Uh, but the other thing is, he's clearly got a thing for dead young women or young women who look yeah. dead, and that is just 
it's part of the creepiness vibe and the whole goth vibe, but it does get to a place where I'm like, let's acknowledge this in class. And, you know, this is, this guy's got a, a weird thing, but I mean, when it comes to topics about, you know, lighting and framing and sound and how that can then inform my students about how to be better readers of prose. Uh, it's really yes. cool because the kids will go, oh, next time I'm reading a novel, if I were to light this scene, how would I light it? What does that say about the tone? What does that say about the mood? What is? How does that speak to theme? And so we end up with some really high level writing and thinking going on through film. So it, it's a great unit, but yeah, Burton is problematic in some ways. Well, it, talking about those problematic pieces, that's part of developing their thinking as well. I, you know, the whole thing about acknowledging counter evidence and um, how you're going to handle that counter evidence is a big thing. And uh, I know in, in eighth grade, the kids are just starting to learn how to acknowledge counter evidence. And so that would be, you know, we talk about it when, well, in eighth grade, we read The Outsiders and there's there's some shit in the can I can I cuss on this show? Um, I'll have to be, I'll have to beep it for uh, for YouTube, but we can keep it for the podcast. Okay, well there is some, there is some stuff in the Outsiders which the kids need to acknowledge as they move forward with the other thematic material. I will say this about the new Wednesday Adams show: um, the main actress is Latina, and she's very she puts that out there. Her name's Jenna Ortega. And she puts, she's very much involved in Latinx uh, empowerment in the movie industry. So I'm glad to hear, I'm glad, and I'm glad to hear that Burton is not going, oh no, she has to, you know, be, uh, you know, uh, white, formerly blonde girl who's now <laughs> blonde hair looks like it's faded because she's also deceased. Uh, so that's, that is, that's progress for him. Um, right. Progress. <laughs> casting a Latina. Good for Burton. Um and good for the industry. I mean, you know, I think the the whole industry is recognizing the importance of representation. My my my, my representation matter story. Uh, so one of our authors, Sangchroma, uh, black woman, uh, she and I were both very very excited about Black Panther when it came out. And so I tweeted something out about I'm going to see Black Panther again, and uh, I've, you know, in theaters. And she right away messaged me, and she was like, "How many times?" And I was like, "Oh, this is my my second time seeing it." And she was like, "It's my twelfth representation matters." And I was like, "Yep, like she is loved she that movie and went again and again and again." Is she the woman from like the Washington D.C. area yes. who wrote the book? Yes, Jin. Yes. What's the name? Of her, uh, the, uh, her novel's Jin, uh, and it, she's a Liberian American woman, and she mixes. Speaking of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, her deep love of Buffy and the right. Liberian folklore that she heard as a child, and she blends yeah. those two together. It's a really fun book, and I hope she writes yeah. the sequel soon. I know she's working on it, but uh, yeah, folks, I, check I, out Jin. Oh, you did I've read, read that, that one, and I put it in my class library. Yeah, at, at school. Because it matters, you know, our kids are like, oh, I see myself in this. And even if it is not their culture, even if they're not, you know, of Liberian descent, they're seeing that different cultures can enrich a book. Uh, and it's not the same thing that they've read a thousand times. So, yeah, that one's that one's totally worth folks time. Even if you're not Liberian, please check it out. <laughs> it's really good. Um, So what's something other than pop other than on a screen uh although i should talk about tiktok because boy you are right somebody will send me a tiktok and that's like a curse like oh great you sent me one there goes an hour because i'm gonna watch that one <laughs> it is dangerously addictive but it is so fun are there anybody is there anybody in particular in tiktok that you've been coming back to or themes that you know keep coming up in your in your where your algorithm is shaping itself around those yeah, my algorithm is so all over the place. I, <laughs> I, I just couldn't tell you. Um, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah, Crystal curates hers. You know, she's very careful about. Nope, this is not for me. This is not for me. This is not for me. And eventually, it figures out. And hers is uh, all 
queer uh queer people of color basically are the only people who eventually start showing up on her feed and neurodivergent and so lots of stuff about you know i saw this great tiktok the other day about what it's like to have adhd you know from this uh you know a great queer creator uh so you know her her feed is and so when she stops watching it for a while she'll be like uh there are a lot of straight white men showing up in my algorithm. I've been away from TikTok too long. Uh, but uh, yeah, mine is, uh, you know, like yours. I've got the dance videos and then I've got the a lot of folks doing um, really great videos about history. You know, uh, things yeah. you didn't know about Oregon history or whatever, where they just blow my mind. I, I have a lot of those. I, I enjoy the dance videos. I enjoy the history videos. Um, I... I have a black belt in Taekwondo, and so mm. there's one or two Taekwondo folks that I follow. It's it's I follow basically if somebody is purporting to be an influencer, I pretty much won't follow them. Right. That's pretty, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if there's just interesting things going on, those are the people I'm going to follow. Um, there's there's a guy I don't even like. I said I, my my Daytona. I, I already dropped it. There's a watch guy on TikTok that I follow, and he he just goes around looking at vintage watches and um like i said i'm not even that in the game i i've already lost my one watch i but I it's know. somebody who has a passion for something other than themselves like that those are the ones that i like the most too and it's the way i feel about a lot of rap music too like i understand there is a deep tradition within you know rap where the the rapper themselves is the focus and they are saying this is why i am great and that's part of the 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 rap culture but i have a hard time with it because it sounds very much like uh madison avenue advertising like this is why yeah. i as a product am cool and i'm like i'm just not that interested in you as a product but the uh the the rap that i really enjoy is the rap that's about something other than the rapper where they're saying you know this is what's going on in uh, Colombia, you know, like I, I, a lot of it, or the the really political folks, uh, you know, immortal technique, where they're saying this is what you need to know about history that you're not recognizing that is affecting my community today. And immortal technique still has songs that are just about this is why I'm great, you know. But the ones that the, the, the <laughs> those songs that are like this is about you know what's going on in the encomienda in Cuba or whatever, and I'm like this is a really cool song, so. Yeah, I think rap music is extremely powerful leveraged instrument for talking about that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I I don't follow rap music in particular, but uh, I know that a lot of the older rap was maybe more political than nowadays. Or if there is still political rap, it certainly isn't getting as much exposure. But, you know, you go back to Public Enemy or NWA, you're going to hear political rap. Yeah, and I think I, I and and maybe it's we're not hearing the political rap. I think the political rap right. is not as, you know, it doesn't rise to the top of the pop charts because that's the institution that's saying maybe this is a little, you know. But if you if you get outside of the pop charts, there are folks doing some really cool stuff. I think it's also been really subdivided. It used to be, you know, rap was its own category. And now there's like nerd core and and queer core and like there's, you know, uh, nerd hop and, you know, and and uh, there's there's some really cool kind of subgenres within rap that have folks doing just amazing work. But it also means they're not making money. Uh, and so they're not the ones rapping about, you know, this is why I am making billions of dollars. They're rapping about this is what's going on in my life. And I'm still struggling as an artist. And I'm like, mm, I identify more with that because I'm not in that socioeconomic class of your, you know, your, your rappers who are making billions of dollars and that's what they want to talk. It's like that, uh, the, you know, the thing that gets in the way of a lot of, uh, you know, rock and roll artists, you know, back in the day, the second album sucked because the second album was how hard it is to be incredibly famous and successful financially. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, I can't identify with any of this. Your first album, when you were a struggling artist, was really great. I could identify. And your third might be great yeah. when you get away from, boy, it's been so hard to deal with my record company. But boy, your record company album, that's that's not my, uh, that's not my, in my, my <laughs> experience. So speaking right. of music, uh, yes. um, yeah, what else have you, what, you know, what are some hobbies that have been getting in the way of your writing? Uh, well, I have been following the World Cup. 
And I'm not a soccer player per se, but I love the drama. I love the storylines. I love the international uh, aspect to it. Um, this has been a particularly interesting World Cup because there's also been some democracy issues and some other political issues yes. that are being highlighted. Um, and we can just start with the story of how on earth did Qatar obtain this World Cup? Oh, yeah. um, there may, I mean, it's almost certain that there was some bribery involved. They're not a democracy. They repress women. Um, there was huge concerns about uh, workers not being dying. paid. Work, yeah. Dying. A large number of workers endangered in the building of the facilities. That's big. That's big. But that's and that's one of the storylines that's uh, continuing to go through. I, I believe uh, a journalist who was reporting deeply on this for um, was it the New York? I can't uh, remember which the fellow who passed away. Yes, he passed away. Yep. Yep. And we don't, it's mysterious. We don't know why, you know, was it uh, some, you know, and there, there's a lot of speculation. Was it a virus? Was it something more nefarious and intentional? Uh, because he, That's I think right. he'd also been reporting on, and if I'm, if I'm, I think I got this secondhand, but I believe he wore a shirt with uh, like sure. a pride symbol or something. And that the Qatari rainbow, right? not excited. It was a big rainbow, yeah. And the Qatari government is not, uh, you know, supportive of the LGBTQ plus community in Qatar, or all the folks who are LGBTQ plus or allies who are coming into their country. And so, yeah, that there's some suspicion there. Um, yeah, but yeah, what and, a, and then the story. Um, the, uh, the team from Iran refused to sing during their national anthem. And so I do have, I'm worried about those players. What's going to yeah. happen to them when they go back? Also, uh, I, I'd love to get more verification, but a lot of the crowd shots, you know, they love those crowd shots. There were crowd shots of uh, people from Iran, including women wearing more westernized clothes with more skin and all of that. And it's come up that maybe those women were paid by the Iranian government to look happy, to represent in the stands. And these allegations, I haven't, I don't know if there's enough verification. It's like those allegations when Trump supposedly pays and pays Actors. local people. Yes. Yeah, list to, to come appear at this rally. I mean, it's been alleged, but there's not a lot of verification to that. But this is also something that's now alleged that the Iranian, Iranian government paid to have a positive representation of their fans. I find so. it totally plausible. I mean, that's very believable. Authoritarians frequently put on a show. Uh, and, you know, whether that's Trump here or the Iranian government, there's a, you know, similar vein. And he's an admirer of uh, autocrats. And that's one of the things they do is you, you put on a show that makes it look like, hey, I've got a lot more support than I really do. So I, I, I find that, you know, <clears throat> very, very believable. Uh, but um, at the same time, it is interesting that they would uh, have uh, Iranian women not in the hijab, uh, and you That's know, right. and and you know, say, so see, every you know, the, when Iranian women are out in the world, they're happy. Well, would those women be how would those women be treated if they were home and dressed in that way? Yeah. So, um, and there's, as I was following that story on TikTok, a a woman, an advocate, came on. And she was talking about these these rallies and protests in Iran are getting larger and larger. They've been going on for many weeks now, and there's a point where I think the Iranian government may have been hoping they would they would peter out, uh, but they're not. No, uh, we're not here. Yeah, they're, which is wonderful. And at the same time, I don't know as a Westerner how to be properly supportive, because I know the Iranian government would love to say, and has frequently said, see, this is all a Western plot. And that's been one of their go-tos. And so if we are supportive, how do we express that support without becoming a tool for the Iranian government to say, see, this is just something that, you know, uh, middle-aged white guys in, in Oregon care about, you know, and, and so like, you know, how, how do we actually provide real allyship? But uh, I, yeah, I do. Uh, I am excited about the opportunities because Iran is a highly educated uh, you know, it's this very rich culture, like Iran um, is a you know very modern country. If it can get beyond 
uh, this, the, the, you know, the repression of its own government, uh, I, I would yeah. be, the Iranian people, I would love to welcome into the world community and I think uh, could make such a huge positive addition to the world community if their own government weren't getting in their way. And, uh, and yeah. you know, the, the, the women there are highly educated, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot that they have to offer the world if they can free themselves from that oppression. So I am hopeful. And, you know, they have, you know, we're both writers, the, the Iranian tradition in literature goes back thousands of years. It's, it's literature is part of their culture in ways that, well, it's not in yeah. our culture. Especially I mean, poetry. Yeah, poetry, we, exactly. you can it's sell a out a, a, a stadium as a poet in right. Iran. Uh, I, I had a little bit of experience with that in Egypt too, where poets are public heroes. And, you know, I just, I, I talk with my students about different cultures have different art forms that they elevate to, to that kind of popular level. You know, opera is a much bigger deal in Italy than it is in the United States. And that's not to say that, you know, one culture is better than the other. We just have, you know, I, I, of course, as somebody who writes poetry, it would be cool <laughs> if our culture said, oh, yeah, that's the big thing. But that's not, you know, I, I don't change the art form because it's less popular in our culture. But uh, but, you know, that, that it, it is cool to see, you know, people selling out stadiums as poets uh, and uh, right. that embraced. And I would love to have more interaction with uh, the, the poetry culture of some of those you know countries where it's still uh, such a vibrant. I shouldn't say vibrant form. We do have a, poetry is on um, you know ascendant in our culture uh, thanks to slam poetry that kind of thing. So it is it's a good time for poetry in the United States, uh, but uh, we're, we're we're not to that those heights yet. <laughs> we don't. Yeah, you, we're not at the point where you can walk down the street, random strangers ask them to recite poetry for yeah. you. Whereas yeah. in Iran, it's a thing people can do. And uh, Russia, too. I mean, people will be able to quote Pushkin to you like they memorize. Right. They love Pushkin in, in Russia. It's another culture where I just think if we can, you know, and not we, I shouldn't say that the Russian people will have to free themselves from their autocrat. But uh, I am, you know, I, I would love to see the Russian people toss Putin out and free themselves from the limitations that their autocracy places on their ability to interact with the, the broader cultural world. So yeah. hopefully, hopefully. So uh, speaking of art, what else have you been getting up to uh, in terms of time outside of your writing time? I, um, I have been able to do more exercise and that feels good because at my age, 58, there's some joint that's sore all the time <laughs> you feel as you get older i mean the exercise feels good it feels emotionally good mentally good but it also you just have to do the exercise just to maintain a baseline that you could have maintained without exercise when you right. were 30 so and, what is your um, exercise of choice <clears throat> well i go running twice a week which is as much as my knees can take and then i have some free weights that I use around the house, not very rigorously. Um, and then I also, my son and I do Taekwondo. Yeah. And on a good week, we'll go twice, twice a week to the Woodstock Community Center and uh, mix it up with Taekwondo. Uh, taekwondo is great for your knees. You might think it's really bad for your knees, because but all of the movements are fairly rote. All of the movements are built into muscle memory. So you're not twisting in an unexpected way. Mm. And so I feel like my knees are well lubricated. Yeah, and I have thought about doing Tai Chi because it's right. that low impact, you know, calming. It would be, it's, you know, it would be martial arts meets yoga for me, but I think that would be really uh, a healthy choice to try and get into that. But it's finding the time. So I'm glad you're finding, I mean, it's carving out the time. You know, this is when I run, this is when I go, you know, that's, that's, that is, <laughs> that's a good practice. The other thing I do is um, I, I do play the harmonica. I, I've been a harmonica player longer than I've been a writer. Um, I've always been straining to find some sort of intersection between writing and harmonica playing, but I've never found it. Um, in many ways, it's good to have different creative outlets that don't intersect because it's, sometimes it's nice to have things that complement 
and tap different parts of your brain. But part of me is looking for the connection because, you know, when you're playing the blues, you're improvising. It's, it's like speaking. It's like communicating. Um, also, this little thing does not deliver a lot of the sound. The sound is coming from your body. It's coming from your lungs, your mouth, your tongue, your teeth, your lips, which is like speaking, right? Isn't that right. what speaking is? And you articulate your tone just the same way you articulate words. You use your breath like you're using words. So part of me says there's got to be a way to connect. Yeah, I'm thinking about that, too, because, you know, part of the nature of it is you can't use the spoken word and the harmonica at the same time. And so they they would have to reflect upon one upon the other outside of the same, you know, they can't be contemporaneous. Uh, and and that is not entirely a bad thing. You could write about playing the harmonica. You could play the harmonica informed by what you have learned as a writer in terms of theme, but you can't do them simultaneously. I've, um, I went to a reading by Samuel Rojas Chua. He's a Eugene poet. And when he started the the reading he put this box on his podium and the box it was essentially a harmonica it had a little bellows that pumped like an accordion that it pumped in and out it made a drone note like for meditation and he started his poetry reading by playing this drone note and then speaking over it and then also joy harho the former poet laureate yes a saxophone player she put saxophone into her poetry readings and, you know, we're talking about reed instruments and the harmonica yeah. is a reed instrument. Um, here's my dream. Are you familiar with recipe poetry where people write, it's a poem that's about food and cooking food. And it's usually like a beautiful, evocative poem, but it's also a working recipe. I you can never, actually... I will have to do some research. That's a cool, like, I, and I am so incompetent in the kitchen that I will joke with my family that I am cooking when I'm making a charcuterie board, which is cheese and crackers on a plastic plate. Like uh -huh. that is like, the extent of my cooking ability, but I am an admirer. So I will, I will check that. What is the poetry called? Uh, it's just called recipe poetry. Um, I have a friend who, yes, I have a friend who, extremely talented at recipe poetry. Her name's Nora Robertson or Nora Roberts. And she, um, her poems are incredible. They're very sensual, they're, they're love poems. But then if you really look at them, it's like, son of a gun, I think I could actually cook this. Yeah, oh yeah. So what if there's like for a harmonica, what if I wrote some directions, how to play the harmonica? That was a like a story, a poem, a flash piece. But it was also a working piece of directions. Well, and for, I think you could uh, do some really cool stuff metaphorically within it so that it was, yeah. you know, how to play the harmonica. And it starts off and it seems like here's, you know, rote instructions. And then when you start to get into it's not just what note you're playing. It's how you're feeling. You could really do some cool. That could be a really cool poem. Yes. And, yeah. and yeah, I think that's the way that you bridge it because you can't play it and you know, share your writing simultaneously without a bellows device, but you could <laughs> let you, that experience inform your work, which I, I would love. So yeah, when you write that poem, yeah. I want to read it. I will. Um, okay, so we've got to take a, an ad break and we don't have a, official sponsors yet, uh, but I loved your idea for our, our ad break today. So this is our, uh, I haven't even mentioned Doug yet. So Doug, the producer is going to be the one who is going to, you know, polish this and take care of all the technical aspects. And uh, so Doug, fire up the ad music here. This week, while we wait for our paying sponsors, our ad read comes from Robot Pizza, the drone delivery pizza company coming to your neighborhood soon. Just download the Robot Pizza app on the Android or Apple store, plug in the order, and listen for the sound of whirring rotors, because that pizza will arrive on your doorstep in under 10 minutes or your order is free. Robot Pizza has fixed 95% of the glitches that caused those drone accidents you probably heard about, and really, as long as it gets to your house fast and hot, who cares if there's sometimes a little blood splatter on the outside of the box? And yes, the drones are watching everything in your neighborhood and communicating all of that information to corporations and civil authorities, but think of that as the ultimate neighborhood watch program. And the pizza itself? 
it might not be quite as good as Heatlamp Convenience Store Pizza, but you only have to walk from your couch to your front door. And if you integrate the app with your smart door, the drones can even bring the pizza right to the place you are seated now. Roadblade injuries to your property, yourself, or household pets are the legal responsibility of the purchaser. So give Robot Pizza a whirl and get yourself a slice today. What do you think? Is that Doug's well, you know, funny thing about that is um, while I was in Beverly Hills with Brad, I, I can refer to a first name basis, yeah. all that kind of stuff. We ordered a robot pizza. It was, we were busy. And the, the most amazing thing about it, you know, the, the motor on these drones gets very hot, but the, the motor is below the rotors so that the rotor air pushes down on the, the motor. Its heat gets transferred to the pizza itself keeping the pizza warm when it arrives. It was delicious. I give it to It was good pizza. It was good pizza. Okay, good. And and delivered, you know, promptly. Yeah. Um, okay, so our next thing, our next segment is uh, haiku. So uh, we, uh, this, this idea came to us from one of our uh, regular listeners and uh, somebody who's been communicating with me via Twitter about the show. We used to do five word poetry. And actually, the initial idea was what is one word that you could uh, use, you know, kind of, uh, you know, our kind of word that we would share. And then the idea was to go to five word poetry and it, writing, crafting a line of poem outside of context was really challenging. And so this uh, reader, this li listener of the show, and I will be sharing one of hers, uh, said, why not haiku? Which is a great idea. Uh, haiku is a wonderful form. It can be uh, done very simply or it and quickly. Sometimes you can knock out a haiku in no time. And yet it's an art form that can be really rich. So uh, do you want to take it away and share a haiku first? Okay. Um, here's I have a question first. Yes. And I just truly don't know. Uh, does one contextualize the haiku before reading it? Or does one contextualize the haiku after one reads it? Because I know the great haiku mas masters often had like entire essays that went yeah. with their haiku. Yeah. Um, so, I, 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 I think either is legitimate. Uh, <laughs> you know, so which way would you like to frame this one? Um, I think I'll read the haiku first. Okay, go for it. Talking to someone, I don't hear the same words. Deaf, are they listening? Mm. So what the, the context here is that um, I've experienced a great deal of hearing loss. And like in my left ear, I would even qualify as being legally deaf in my left ear. Um, and I have a lot of raging tinnitus. I could barely even talk to Brad on our on our get together. Um, however, so so suffice to say, when I'm talking to someone, we are not hearing the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm having a very different auditory experience. And um, so, it's, it's, have you seen that movie, The Sound of Metal? No, that's oh about the um, the 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 is he a drummer? Drummer. Yeah, you yeah, should check that out. Um, that movie captures my day-to-day -day reality in terms of hearing. Um, but then I also, the, the last line is the pivot, because I think a lot of haiku pivots. And uh, the last line is, maybe two people are not having the same hearing conversation because one of them's not listening. And how has this manifested? Because you're still doing, you're out, you're doing, uh, you know, live events and selling books yeah. in giant crowded spaces how has the yeah. hearing change changed that experience? Oh, it's uh, it's difficult. Um, I, I did a book fair at the Oregon Historical Society. There was like 50 authors. They're all blurbing, talking their books. And it was extremely challenging for me to hear. I have to lean in. You know, I have to do that kind of thing. Um, and then we just, I just did a little craft fair at the beautiful Selwood Community House, and there was a booth that was inflating animals with a helium tank. <laughs> every, every time they puffed up that animal, that sound would send my ears ringing. And, and which uh, side were they on? They were they were on my right side, which is I can hear I'm at about 70 percent 
hearing on my right side, I'm down to about 50% on my left. And so 50% means you can hear, I mean, that's what it sounds like. Uh, so it was a challenge. It, it just, you leave with your ears ringing. Well, and it would have been better for you probably if they'd been on the other side. They were taking up right. your good ear. Uh, right. right. And then the other thing is uh, in terms of just being in crowds, like if it's a if it's a conference or a panel and someone asks a question in the audience, I can't hear the freaking question. I cannot hear the question. And so I'm the obnoxious one raising my hand, asking the presenter, can you please repeat the repeat question? The question. <laughs> well, that's a good uh, thing. You know, when I uh, moderate panels, I try and always make a point because there's somebody in the room who could not hear the question. And if it's being videoed, it's that it's not being picked up. And so then right. these panelists will give these great answers and somebody in the audience is going, this is a mystery now. I'm trying to decipher what was the question that they are all answering. So yeah, that's just an important thing for folks out there to hear. If you are on that panel, repeat the question first. It sounds weird to, you know, to hear somebody just kind of compulsively repeat the question. But I think we have a little more experience of that in as teachers. Like I try and yeah. make that a practice in class too. Oh, did you hear what, uh, you know, uh, Jasmine just said? That's a great question. Repeat yeah. it and then talk about it with the class. So I even did this thing with my students because um, at the end of the day, when they put up the chairs, the cacophony just, it was unbearable. It was truly painful. Um, and so I trained the kids. We all pick up the chairs at the same time. We all turn them upside down and then they hover over their desk. And then I say one, two, three, and they all put the chairs down at once. And I got my ears plugged. Right. So I, there's just this one boom and, and instead of crash, 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 crash. And, and then there's the whole teamwork. They kind of get into it after yeah. a while. Yeah, so yeah, that's that of... is fun. Yeah, my 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 classes are not that well organized. <laughs> I'm still fighting the um I see you putting your computer in your backpack and there are four minutes left of class. Those are my four <laughs> minutes. What are you doing? <laughs> we still have to get some work done here. Um Me too. Yeah, yeah having that system, making a game of the leaving is a good idea. So I've got a couple more. Yeah. Uh uh haikus that were contributed karen eisenbray who was our guest last week contributed this one and i will well, i will contextualize it in advance so this relates to the novel of hers the science fiction novel that we just signed ego and endurance which we talked about on last week's show which re-envisions the shackleton journey to uh the to antarctica as a science fiction story heading to the asteroid belt uh, beyond Mars. So her haiku, asteroid mining, a workable idea until it hits you. <laughs> I liked that one. And then yeah, this one that comes from- That thing I'm talking about, that has that thing where it twists. Yep, yep, the, the, the turn, the pivot. Yeah, the pivot. Uh, and this one comes from Kelly, uh, who came up with the idea of doing haiku for the show. Uh, so thanks to Kelly. Kelly uh, tweets at phoenixlily245 on Twitter. Rummage through the earth. What's beneath the cold cement? A long flower gasps. And I like that word choice at the end too. That was, you know, th that that's one of the things that makes haiku work is if the words are chosen really carefully. So uh, yeah. I like the gasps as our verb there. There's, a, there's even a, a word in Japanese for the final word of a line. In this case, the final word of that last line is, um, I think they call it like the cutting word um, because it cuts a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's it. Um, and, and that haiku reminds me of the famous um, Tupac Shakur uh, poem about the rose from concrete. Yeah. Yep. Um, Okay, so for announcements, I, again, show about not writing. So I don't want to, uh, to, to you know, make you talk about what's the next project. Instead, what is, what is it you're doing right now uh, in terms of writing? And you mentioned a couple of sales events. Anything else that folks can uh, be looking out for, for for you from in terms of your writing career in the present? Well, let's see. Um... I'm working on a novel, and I'd like to think the novel is pretty much done. 
I'm gonna, I need to run it by a sensitivity reader. Uh, I actually have one queued up, but this, this meeting with you right now is a good reminder. She told me to nudge her in December so that she keeps her schedule full. Um, so I gotta, I gotta get this novel through a sensitivity reader. Um, the other thing is I'm looking ahead to the AWP conference in Seattle coming up in March. I don't really have any big plans myself per se at the conference, but I am looking forward to some opportunities to get involved in, in whatever ways that I can. Uh, and I've been a mentor with other writers in the AWP's Writer to Writer project. And there'll be some get togethers where maybe I can finally meet my mentee. In person. Yes, that would be nice. Um, yeah, my, what is your... I, 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 well, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in the, the uh, I'm, I'm a big proponent of sensitivity readers. I think that's an important yeah. part of the process that writers sometimes, you know, for, for reasons of cost or not understanding the importance they skip. Uh, what is this sensitivity reader going to be looking out for? What do you want them to be looking out for in your current piece? Uh, thank you for asking. Uh, this book is, the main character is a Japanese American woman, third generation, circa 1980 which coincides quite a bit with my experience growing up. Um, I grew up in Southeast Portland, Cleveland High School, a large number of Asian students at Cleveland High School in the early 80s, and quite a few were Japanese. And so I feel like I have some adjacent authority to write on this topic. However, that is categorically not the same as being within the culture. I mean, just to cite an example. Right. Not your lived experience. This is exactly why sensitivity readers are so vital. I, I, I've written a couple of novels where my main characters are, you know, people of color. My main characters are women in most of my books. And having somebody else look it over and just, that, it's that little insight, you know, where they say, well, you're getting this not quite right or you're getting this right, but it's a generalization and maybe dodge away from that stereotype, you know? And so having somebody right. who is aware of the ways that my experience, seeing somebody else's lived experience from the outside is going to lend itself to stereotyping. It's going to lend itself to ignorance of, you know, minutia. So how can I find somebody who's really got that lived experience? Uh, that's so important. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And also the person that has offered to do this even offered to uh, help with some of the dialogue because the main character, she's an interpreter and she's interpreting for a Japanese businessman. Do you remember back in the early 1980s when there was this huge xenophobia about Japan was going to take over take the over U.S.? Everything. Yep. Yeah. And they, they bought a couple high profile properties like Rockefeller Center and um, it's it's ridiculous. I mean, who is this they? As if there was some sort of block yeah. of hegemonic, yeah, you know, ridiculous. secret cabal. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, suffice to say, she's dealing with that. She's interpreter for a Japanese businessman, and gets in over her head. It's a mystery thriller, uh, but the dialogue goes in and out of Japanese, and I want to be able to represent that with authority. And so I want to have, she's a Japanese American, third generation. So she's not even gonna speak the same Japanese as her Japanese businessman. Um, and then there's also different registers. There's formal registers in Japanese. There's words that um, are only used if you're among other men. There's, uh, there's conversations you would only have among other women. Uh, so there's all of these different layers to the conversation. And a lot of the book, it's not a lot of Japanese, but there are places where I'm gonna go in and out. And I want to get that right as well. That was a, a really challenging thing for me in my last book. I wanted to make sure that, you know, a, a, somebody who only spoke English would not miss out on anything when I used a foreign language. And so there's this conversation between my protagonist and her grandmother, and her grandmother only speaks Spanish. And so she would then have to reflect in the the kind of the the narrative voice on what, you know, what is it her grandmother had just said in such a way that it would translate it without feeling like she was translating, because that's boring for the reader. I don't want a reader who does speak Spanish to go, oh, it's translated each time. So it was, you know, the grandmother would say something and then she would say, oh, you know, I have wondered about X in such a way that it was kind of blended. But that was a real writing challenge. Um, and, 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 and 
now we're getting into writing and that's not the point of the show. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that, I think that experience of working with a sensitivity reader is an important part of the writing process that isn't the writing, uh, but that, that is, you know, worth uh, discussing and thinking about and, and advocating for to uh, the show's listeners and viewers. If it is outside of your lived experience, get that input. That's so, especially when dealing with something well, every culture is that complex. The complexity is what you miss if it's not your lived experience. And you say, oh, okay, the Japanese is this thing that I can pull up in Google Translate. No, it's not. You could live your entire life and not master a language. Uh, and all the cultural you know, registers that you were referring to, that's not something that you or I would just be aware of. Yeah, and the other thing in terms of... Uh, you want your book to be better. You want the characters to be more real. You want the characters to be three-dimensional. And to the extent that they can bust out of stereotypes, even if the stereotype is based on some accurate pattern, if for them to be fully three-dimensional, they need to um, operate in ways that are authoritative and yet unpredictable and so that they become fully lived people. And so to that extent, Getting the sensitivity reader, it's not just checking off a box, although it is a step we should be doing. It's also about making, you, you can walk away with stronger characters when you're done. Yeah, it's a part of the craft. It really is. It's it's taking the craft seriously. And I think if, if folks are saying, I am resistant to this on, you know, I, I, identity grounds, you're also damaging the work, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. in the same way you would research anything else. You need to research that to give the, the characters that complexity. I totally agree. Um, okay, so uh, changing topics wildly, um, but we uh, each week we have a weekly poll. And so we'll put this poll up. And last week's was about uh, kinds of Christmas cookies popular kinds of Christmas cookies. And we don't just ask folks for their feedback. We ask them for uh, explanations. So, you know, it's the, the, the multiple choice, certainly, uh, but also the why. Why is that your Christmas cookie that you like? So let me pull up the results here and we can, because uh, I should have had this in front of me already. Uh, and I can tell you what the results were of our four options. So our four choices that we had were ginger snaps, sugar cookies, shortbread, and double chocolate crinkle, which are those, <laughs> Karen and I weren't even, couldn't even remember what they were called, but those chocolate ones with the white powdered sugar on top. And the overwhelming winner was shortbread. I, I, I sh maybe I shouldn't say overwhelming winner. 40% went for shortbread. Uh, 18 for, for sugar cookies, 27 for ginger snaps, and then uh, double chocolate crinkle, probably because people didn't know what we were talking about. Uh, that one uh, got 13%. But the answers are what's great. So uh, Karen Eisenbray says shortbread because butter. Solid, right? That, you know, uh, and uh, let's see, we can see that more than once. Uh, uh, B. Uh, Zelkovich, uh, same thing, butter. Uh, ginger snaps, they taste like December from Jesse Hunard. Love that one. They taste like December. Uh, and ginger snaps, not just a tasty treat, but a superb movie. Uh, I need to go back and check that one out. I don't think I've ever seen. Have you ever seen ginger snaps, the movie? Never even heard of it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to look into that one. So uh, the question to you is what should be our poll for this next week? Um. Well, tell me about what you think about this. Um, we know that since Elon Musk has taken over Twitter, I don't know about you, but when I see the trending topics, it's a lot more inflammatory stuff. Um, and, you know, it's not just a question of Twitter being an open forum and the free exchange of ideas. I mean, these are openly trolly sort of topics that are trending. Um, they're openly um, hate speech adjacent and sometimes nakedly hate speech topics that are trending, which arguably isn't really about the free exchange of ideas anymore. It's it's being manipulated. So I start to have concerns. I Do I want to dignify this open forum if I have the same platform as Kyle Rittenhouse, 
for example, and he's showing up in my trending topics. I just have concerns about that. And as you know, because you're on Twitter too, the writing community has talked openly about looking for another platform. And there was talk about Mastodon um, and people tried that out, maybe with not so much luck. And then there was also something called Hive. I tried Hive and I, I just looked on it today and no one's posted anything for about two weeks. And that's the challenge of these other forums is I don't think Hive or Mastodon are bad. But if that's not where the people are, that's not where the conversation is. And so right. that's that's the, you know, until they reach that critical mass. But I think, yeah, that that broader question is a really good one. And it's a and it's a conversation, the whether or not to participate in a conversation, conversation. Should I right. even be in this space? And that's a really fraught. I, I don't have a clear sense myself. Uh the the one thing that I do come back to is we we haven't heard the same conversation about Facebook. And I wish that we were having that conversation that was more encompassing because, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't make himself the, the, the focus of Facebook in the same way Elon is trying to be the celebrity of Twitter and all the conversation is about him. Uh, Elon went on stage yesterday with, uh, with uh, Dave Chappelle, like he's trying to be, a celebrity. Mark Zuckerberg's not going on stage, but Mark Zuckerberg right. was conscious, had been informed that Facebook was being used to facilitate a genocide in Myanmar and allowed it on free speech grounds. Hey, we can have this genocide here. Uh, we're just, you know, providing the platform. And I think that's a conversation, you know, that that should be in the mix too. Are we are obligated when we know this platform is being used for incredible evil to leave or are we obligated to remain and fight or you know that's, that's question yeah maybe that's the question maybe that's the way to do the poll question yeah maybe Stand that's the way because i my question was should we all leave twitter on mass and find a new platform that's a yes or no question but you're asking the more nuanced one because it really boils down to what is the outcome here, not just in terms of our community, but also in terms of how do you fight the hate speech? Do you fight it by taking away your attention? And I would argue that that's actually effective with someone like Trump, because right. when no one's paying attention to him, it enrages him. But on the other hand, when you have people trolling uh, fake news, and when you have people doing concern trolling and um, other just kind of BS moves, who aren't part of a conversation, they're part of a propaganda agenda. Ignoring them could be a concern because what if their, their wording has traction? Yep. And, and this and, is really dispiriting. I read some research about kind of fact checking actually magnifies the lie. Uh, and so even, you know, when we engage and say this is untrue, that, you know, vaccines do not kill you we have reinforced this idea that some people think vaccines kill you and right. that you know brings that to to the public consciousness uh whereas if we said nothing maybe that idea would be fringier and die or maybe unchecked it would cause more people to not get vaccines and literally die and so you know here's this incredibly dangerous idea this idea that will kill people and fact checking it also augments it to some degree. And that that is uh, scary. And I was thinking about this in the context of um, uh, artificial intelligence. The, these AI programs have no sense of moral obligation to tell the truth. They don't care about truth in the same way you or I do. They are thinking, what is it that the most humans will believe or like, really like, not even believe? They don't think about it in that way. And so we're going to see a lot more writing that is not even concerned about what is true, uh, but will sound increasingly believable because believability is something that the, the, the system is concerned with. And I worry that the, the, the scolds, the fact checkers, are just going to magnify a lot of new lies that <laughs> the computers came up with. And, and, and increasingly hard to distinguish from a true human. Yep. I mean, that's going to become part of a human's full-time job is figuring out what is real 
And we just are not prepared for that. And when you look back historically, when there is a new technology, it creates a space for authoritarianism and evil. Uh, you know, Hitler used film. People were pretty good in, in you know, uh, Weimar Germany on newspapers. They were willing to go, okay, I can, I already have the skill set to bring a certain skepticism to the written word. But they weren't prepared for, these movies wow. are affecting my emotions in this new way and I don't know how to handle it. And we absolutely saw the same thing with social media in our era where this, you know, Demagogue was able to jump in at just the right time when people were not ready to figure out how do we properly address somebody who is compulsively lying in very small bursts, <laughs> you know, and we just didn't know how to handle that. And that allowed for this toehold for very, very frightening people. And eventually we will figure out the technology. We will learn to be critical and I think we're in for another wave with AI where we're going to see deep fakes. We're going to see, you know, whole articles written by computers. And we're going to have to learn to go, who's the author? How can I be, you know, connecting that to a genuine human being? Uh, you know, who is responsible? Who's accountable for these words? That's going to be a lot of work for people who, and we don't even have the skills for it yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that I've retired, I don't have to worry about how to teach that stuff. But I mean, we absolutely in eighth grade, for sure, you, you can teach the kids to be skeptical about um, sources that they see on the Internet. And uh, they got very good at it. They got very good at being skeptical. Uh, but it's still a work in progress because they're they're fully they're digital natives. They're unlike you and me. They're they're digital natives, and um, their access to technology is maybe a little bit too skewed on what they call leaning back as a recipient, as opposed to leaning forward, being more involved. And so they, they have a lot of cultural forces training them to be leaning back and just being a recipient. Uh, that's part of being a digital native. Unfortunately, it shouldn't be. But it is. It's uh, there's not enough ways for people to be more actively involved as um, a critical thinker, as opposed to just a a vessel being filled with information. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that we'll see, I, or I'm interested to see, is for their generation, are they more likely to take something seriously if they are watching a person on TikTok deliver information orally? rather than in the written word, because that skepticism that we've taught them in school, they associate with the written word. And yeah. when they're seeing somebody say it on TikTok, they're going, oh, but I can at least see the human who is responsible for these words. And therefore, it carries more weight. It seems more authoritative. And I think there's a potential danger there. The deep fake computer will eventually be able to create an image of a person speaking to you that is indistinguishable from you or I right now. Uh, the, the people who are watching us on YouTube or hearing us on the podcast and do, you know, people are going to have to retrain themselves to say, just because I'm hearing a human voice or I'm seeing somebody sitting in a chair talking does not mean this is a human. And we're, we're not prepared for that yet. No. Nope. Yeah. So yeah, that's, a, that's a good one. I will ask about the, the, the public, you know, what do you think? Should, what is our responsibility when a, and, and maybe it should be broader when a social media platform is, you know, dangerous, how should we handle that? Do we leave? Do we fight back? Do we study it? Uh, you know, stay, stay to study. Uh, how do we engage in a, in a kind of moral way? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the next thing we would normally do is we would have a listener question. We didn't have any listener questions provided, but if somebody has a question they would like to ask a writer in the future who's going to be a guest on the show, please send those in to notapipepublishing at gmail.com with the subject line listener question. Love to have some. Those can be impossible conundrums. They can be silly questions. They can be, you know, uh, heartfelt questions, something you're genuinely curious about, but I would love to hear from some, uh, some listeners. Uh, next up contacts, where can people find you and your work online? Okay. Well, on Twitter, speaking of all that social media, 
I'm at Twitter. My handle is at evmowi, E-V-M-O-W-I. Those are just the first two letters of the first evmowi. I can't publish as Evan Williams because there's a whiskey called Evan Williams that blocks all the search engines and Anyway, and it would be too easy for my students to find me, and the stories aren't really appropriate for middle school, so <laughs> I, put, I put my middle name in there just to be a little harder to find. Uh, so anyway, my website is evanmorganwilliams.com, and my email is evanmorganwilliams at gmail.com. And I highly, highly recommend that folks check out Evan's work. It is I was so I, as I mentioned, I was reading your most recent uh, collection. And well, I'm, it's it's a show about not writing. I don't want to ask about process, but uh, I did off air. I do have a question about a theme that I feel like was, I don't want to say hidden, but it it, it is a thematic work in more than one way, uh, and and it's clever. So readers, check out that series and go at it like a puzzle. What do these stories have in common? Uh, and uh, and and it's highly worth your time, and also just really well written. So. Highly recommend. Um, so uh, before we get to our send off, which Evan's going to come up with and he gets the last word, but I want to thank the zombie dandies for our intro song. Welcome to the zombie coast. And thanks to Halizna CCO for their song kids at the ad break. Uh, if you're in a band or like your song used on the show, we'd love to highlight a listener's work. So email me about that. Uh, thanks to Doug, the producer, as always, for making the show sound good and taking the blame when it doesn't. And I cannot forget to mention Writers Not Writing is a production of Not A Pipe Publishing. So please go to notapipepublishing.com and check out the amazing books written by writers who didn't procrastinate too much. Uh, if you like this show, rate and review it wherever you found it uh, and check out Evan's excellent books. Rate and review those two. Rate uh, reviews make a real difference and also make an author's day. So please uh, take the time. And, you know, it does not take long uh, to uh, to let Evan know that you enjoyed his work. Okay, so what would be your preferred one-liner to end the show? Okay, well, this might sound a little corny, and uh, but... I used to always tell my students, in everything you say and do, make this place a little better. If we all do a little, it can be a lot. <laughs> <laughs>